Hello, friend. Thanks, as always, for listening to The Tully Show. Today, we will be delving into, I, I want to call it a forgotten chapter of American sports history, but how many people even knew in the first place there was, for a pretty long period of time, a women's professional football league? Learn all about it from the authors of the new book, Hail Mary, in just a moment. Real quick, let me let you know, patreon.com slash Mike Tully now features high-definition video on top of all the stuff i'm doing there the news pods the music pods now i'm doing some shows in video is it a good thing or a bad thing to watch me talking into a microphone while you hear me talking into a microphone only one way to find out and that's to join the party over at patreon.com slash mike tully patreon.com slash mike tully okay you ready to start this show Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live on tape from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, two writers who have combined their efforts on a new book which chronicles a forgotten chapter in the history of American sports entitled Hail Mary, The Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. Hello and welcome, Brittany De La Creta and Lindsay D'Arcangelo. Thanks for having us. Brittany, you have a terrific last name. I pray I said it correctly. Close. It's Delacreta. Delacreta. Ah, terrific last names all around, by the way. Very impressive. <laughs> so, um, okay, just for starters with the subject of your book, it, many people will remember or were aware of there was a professional women's baseball team, I guess, in the 1940s. They made a documentary and then they made the movie A League of Their Own. Everybody knows there was women's professional baseball. I did not know that there was and still is to some extent or another women's professional football why do you think we knew about the one and have never really heard about the other? That's a great question. We haven't been asked that one yet. I aim to please. We haven't. Do you want it? I, I have a thought. Do you have a thought? I think this is, I think just because you are more familiar with the baseball aspect of it, this is more up your alley. All right. So I think that the reason we know about the baseball league is because of a league of their own. Like, let's be real. I think without the movie, People wouldn't know about it and actually were as about far removed from the National Women's Football League now as a league of their own was from the baseball league. So there may be something about like when we're ready to look back on things. But the other thing is, I think like both baseball and football are like kind of known as the, the like men's sports. They're the two sports that like women, quote unquote, don't play. But I think football to some extent is even more so than baseball in people's minds because of the aggressive nature of the sport. It's just assumed that women do not play it. And therefore it's like way less on people's radar. Let's talk about that. What, what about your personal relationship to the game before even coming to the subject? Have either of you ever played organized tackle football or wanted to or still want to? Yeah, I mean, so I, I come from a family of I have two brothers, a twin brother and an older brother. And I grew up in a neighborhood where it was all boys and I did whatever they did and loved every second of it. Football was something we played often. 
tackle, two-hand touch, whatever. I wanted to play youth, fo- youth football, but uh, my parents would not let me because I was a girl. So, you know, I have a, there's a, there's a thread that, you know, started there and has gone through my life as an athlete um, since. Um, played in high school, you know, we had the, the powder puff, although ours was not, I wouldn't call it powder puff because it was outright tackle. You know, it was, it was pretty uh, rough. Um, and I did that for a couple of years. And then I played in college on an intramural, but um, really didn't play in like an organized league until I was in my mid thirties and joined uh, a co-ed to end touch rec league. And, you know, really re- you run plays and all that stuff and, and positions and all, and it was great, but I've been, gosh, I've been involved in football my entire life as, as a Bills fan from the time, you know, I was, you know, could, could understand what was happening. I'm sorry to hear that to now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 13 seconds. Um, <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. Uh, but yeah, I uh, writing this book was great for me because I, I got to just immerse myself in the sport from a different lens. So who who knew about this subject first? What, what familiarity did either or both of you have with this league? You know, how did it come on your radar? So I was the sports columnist for bitch media for a little while and Lindsay and i were friends from the like a facebook group for sports writers of marginalized genders we knew each other we were friendly she knew a lot more than i did about football um in terms of having played it i i come to the sport as a cheerleader (laughs) and familiar with like game day culture um and learning the game from from that angle but had was not familiar with the the state of women's football um, today. And it was something I was writing a column about. And um, I decided to look up books because I was like, oh, well, I want to know about the history of women playing this game. There, there must be history. And there is, but the book I was looking for did not exist. And so I, I was complaining to Lindsay about this. And she said, well, you should write one. And I was like, well, if I write it, you're going to write it with me. And that's how the project got started. And originally, this was a much broader look at the history of women in football. And while we were researching that and preparing a proposal about that, I discovered the Toledo Troopers, who, if you read the book, are the winningest uh, pro team of all time, men's or women's, um, and their star player, Linda Jefferson. And as I dug into that a little more to try to find out what happened when the winningest team loses its first game, because I was interested in that, um, I realized there was a whole league there and and it became really clear at that point to both Lindsay and I that this was actually the book was diving specifically into this league itself. Here's a a, a kind of a dork question. How does co-writing a book work? Because I know that there's ways you can do it where it's half the work and there's ways you can do it where it's twice the work. And hopefully- Very carefully. <laughs> yeah. Who, who no, does I don't, we didn't have any background doing nonfiction. I've written a couple of fiction books, uh, young adult books myself, but neither of us had background in doing a whole nonfiction book. And we, we had never really collaborated on anything else. It was just a matter of, all right, we're going to, we're going to do it and let's see how it goes. I I think one of the indicators for me that we were, it was going to work out was when we worked on the book proposal together, because it just sort of flowed very well and we each did separate parts and then went back and added to each other's parts and 
um, we sort of took the same approach into writing the book. But once the proposal was was written um, successfully, I was like, okay, this is a good start for me anyway. Yeah, I will say that our agent made us sign like a contract in case the relationship fell apart before the book was finished. We had to sign a contract about working together. But I think Lindsay and I have, because we have different strengths, it actually made working together really well because, I mean, really easy because aside from breaking up the teams, which does have the work because, you know, you can split it. The other parts, the, the the cultural analysis, the history pieces, the the state of the modern day game, we were able to divide those. It kind of was really obvious who was going to take what based on what we were both good at. And so I think I think we ended up working really well. Well, let's talk about the book. As you already said, uh, no sport in American culture is more intertwined with masculine identity than football. And this league came about it would still be a thing if you had not it did a big launch for women playing professional football nowadays. But talking about, you know, late 60s, early 70s, you're squarely in the era of women's lib. And I gather from going through the book that the topic of women's lib, the player's relationship, the league's relationship to women's lib was always sort of a third rail issue. Were they or weren't they? Was this a women's lib statement, women playing football? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so... I think about this a lot as somebody who writes about history from a modern lens and, and is trying to look at stories that maybe should have gotten more spotlight than than they did. And I think that we have a tendency to flatten history from, you know, from looking back on it, because we can say that the women's movement was happening at the same time that this league was happening. Therefore, these women must have been part of that that movement. But we all know that's not really how movements work. When you're living through movements, you often don't always know you're living through it. And so on the one hand, the media, because it was mostly men who were covering this sport, really wanted to kind of diminish what the women were doing. And one way that they could trivialize women playing football was to write them off as women's livers and to... Um, kind of forced the women to talk about whether or not they were livers. And that was something the media really forced. The women themselves never really brought it up. Um, but on a personal level, they all had very different relationships to the movement. There are some who will say, yes, I identified with that. Um, when we talked to women from the Columbus Paysetters, many of them were students at Ohio State University and may have had access to some of that, that theory. And they felt differently about it. But the majority of the women they were working class. They were already working outside the home. They um, were not, you know, on the coasts. They were kind of just living their lives and um, didn't really have much time or use for uh, that movement. And so I think we all know that they actually did push society forward just by refusing to, like, follow the rules that were set for them and doing what they wanted to do. But they they did that just because they wanted to play football. It wasn't like a conscious feminist statement that most of them were making when they took the field. Yeah, that was one thing we heard time and time again from the players is that the ultimate reason for, for doing this, for participating for them was to play football. They just wanted to play football and get that opportunity. And yeah, it's, you say, you know, uh, sometimes you can be part of a movement without even realizing you're part of a movement, maybe even thinking you're consciously trying to not be part of a movement, you could still be part of the zeitgeist. And 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 they were. I don't see how there's any way around it. Um, in the book, the players talk about how playing football gave them power 
in you know you're talking about people who are second class citizens by any definition you care to give it literally football is i flex my power you flex yours we see who falls down it's a literal demonstration of of power um the quote that leads your book is just there's so much packed into it I forget who said it. I'm paraphrasing ever so slightly. In that world, women can only be teachers, nurses, or secretaries. And I was a pro football player. Like, yeah, that, that was that juxtaposition. L.A. Dandelion's wide receiver. Yeah. Did you get any impression about how the? So here's what I want to talk about next, and, and this ties into that. From the start, the players took it seriously. It was as simple as somebody said, "Do you want to play football?" And they said, "Yes, I would like to play football." And that's about as far as most as most of us would approach a league like that. The people who were getting it off the ground and trying to further and expand it to them it was a gimmick and and i mean i don't know how these women felt about if they could have chosen their own team name how many of them would have voted for dandelions i don't know (laughs) yeah i think the so the league itself wasn't started to be a gimmick the what what predates the league starting in 1974 um was a guy by the name of sid friedman who saw women's football sort of catching on and saw it as, as this novelty and this next big um, money-making scheme. He was a promoter, a PR guy, always looking for like a crazy act to kind of promote and, and make a buck off of. And he, he sort of saw women's football as that next thing. He, he originally started a team in the vein of the um, Harlem Globetrotters Take, take them around the Rust Belt, have them play against men's teams, um, which they did. And what he didn't realize is, is when he had the tryouts and all these women showed up and wanted to play is that they really wanted to play. They wanted, like you said, to take it seriously and, and, and really play to the best of their abilities. And he decided because there was an attraction and, and there were people coming to these games to start other women's teams and then have those teams compete um, he didn't have an official league, but he had a, a group of teams that that were competing against each other. And um, that was the initial start that happened in 1967. And then for a few years, he was kind of the guy running the show. And then other women's teams started popping up independently of him. Um, owners thinking, you know, well, this this might be the next big thing. You know, I'm, maybe I'll start my own women's team and charge people to come watch them play another, you know. And um, eventually that led to the start of the league when a, a separate group of uh, women's teams and owners really wanted to legitimize it and make it make it like the counterpart to the NFL. Um, and that took it to a different level. Early on, um, it, it, honestly, what it reminded me of, I, for some crazy reason through my work, had a media credential one time too. It may have been the first lingerie bowl, one of the first lingerie bowls. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you know what's, you know what my takeaway was from the lingerie bowl? Like some of the girls there were lingerie models who were taking a paycheck. There were a lot of girls. The hitting was pretty fierce at the lingerie bowl. And it seems like that's what this guy had in mind. You say he envisioned them wearing mini skirts and tearaway jerseys. Now I'm very, very curious. Do you know what the hell a tearaway jersey might entail? Yeah, I'm going to guess it had snaps. So when they're pulled <laughs> on, they rip off. That's my guess. Right. But I I will say that the I have been like kind of goaded in, in interviews before to try to kind of to trivialize or mock the women who played in the lingerie leagues. And mm-hmm. it's something I refuse to do because I think it's such a good example of 
women who are so desperate to play the sport they love that yes. they are willing to do something like play in their underwear um, <laughs> for the male gaze just to get a shot at at playing football or playing the sport that they love. I think of it similarly to the women's baseball players, as we all know from a league of their own, they had to wear skirts and they got very severely injured doing so and were unhappy about it. Um, but they were willing to play in skirts if it meant they got to play baseball. And I think of it really similarly to that. It was this sort of on a low level. It was like a deal with the the devil that, you know, uh, the, the idea is you're going to be able to sell tickets as eye candy. And you have a bunch of people who nobody's thinking about what men are uh, think of the way they look when they're playing football. And, you know, to acknowledge a real important facet of this league, there were particularly a lot of women playing who under no circumstances gave a shit about what women thought about the way that they looked. And that was just the, I mean, you, you talk about how there's, there's billboards saying, come see the team and the women on the billboard aren't even players on the team. They're models. Mm -hmm. And that was just something that was, that was the price of doing business for these women, at least in the early days, I gather. Yeah. And I think for all his faults, I think what Sid realized is that the women who were playing weren't, were going to weren't they, they did, weren't going to wear tearaway jerseys. I mean, they ended up wearing full uniforms and helmets and pads and all that stuff. Um, because I think once he saw that they were taking it seriously and how well they could hold their own against the men's teams and then, you know, eventually playing against other women, that he saw something more in that. Um, I mean, he, he, was, he made a lot of uh, misogynistic comments and, and whatnot, um, but you know, whether we like it or not, he was part of the evolution of women's football. In the book, you describe the community of the league as being um, a mostly safe haven for people to be out of the closet, at least, you know, within the confines of the locker room and the, the playing field. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between this league and, I mean, the gay community and just gay rights in America in general. I think that was one of the threads that I, I was really surprised and excited to get to explore. Um, I did not know that I was going to be going down a rabbit hole into like 1970s lesbian bars in Dallas um, to which, write this which book. Sounded, which sounded very fun, by the way. Yeah. Um, you know, we know that not to buy into stereotypes, right? Like not every woman who's an athlete is gay, but many, many gay women are athletes. Um, and so we knew that some of the players were going to be gay. I think the question was whether they were going to want to talk about it or whether they saw it as connected to their time in the league. And some of them did not see it as connected and many of them really did. Um, and the players, you know, the, a lot of the gay bars at the time had other athletic leagues that were organized out of them. They played softball together um, or a lot of these players, you know, maybe they they played uh, pickup games. They played other sports with their friends. This is kind of how the word got out, right, that that this these teams existed at all. And so um, a lot of them found out through their friends. And we all know that we tend to be friends with people who are in our community. And so um, for a lot of the women on the teams, they were, it was something they were doing with their friends. And, and 
we've gotten estimates that anywhere from like half to 50 to 70% of any given team was gay. We, we obviously don't know, but I think because of the sheer number of queer women that were on the teams, um, it was a safe place. And for a lot of the women, they saw the teams as serving these similar functions to gay bars, right? They were a safe place to be who they were. Um, and I think we see this throughout history is that marginalized communities are really, really good at creating safe spaces in a hostile world. And so this is like one example of them doing that. Um, and for some of the the straight women that played who may not have been exposed to any gay people or met any lesbians before, uh, many of them say to this day, like, like that experience shaped their social politics um, and really exposed them um, you know, to, to queer folks in a way that they would not have been otherwise. Yeah. It's how people change is actually by putting a human face on, uh, you know, a, mm-hmm. a capital I yeah. issue, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. were there any favorite figures that you, I guess any combination, um, either or both of, of, um, these either people that you loved talking about in the book or people you just loved talking to in real life that really stand out? Cause I know you've done, I mean, how many people did you interview for this book? I don't know the exact number, but we, we talked to a, probably a handful of players on each one of our teams. Um, and everybody had something to contribute, um, in, in learning about them. I mean, each is kind of a, a treasure, I would say. Um, there are, as you know, players, we focus on more than others in the book. Um, I would say my favorite is, is Rose Lowe of the LA Dandelions because initially she was reluctant to talk to me. Um, she, she holds her time in the NWFL and with the LA Dandelions very close to her heart. And she's very careful to let people into that side of, of things and, and what it, she wanted whoever was going to do this to handle it to to trust be able to trust them with it and to handle it with care and um she didn't know me you know i had talked to one of her teammates and they said you kept saying that you should really talk to rose she was she was captain she saved all this stuff like she's got a lot of information and i reached out to her um through email and never heard back and then um this one player had said uh, you know i'll talk to her for you and um got her number, texted, never heard back. And then one day I just, I got a text and said, you know, this is Rose Lowe. I'm just sort of feeling me out through text. And then that next step turned into a, a initial phone call. Like she was vetting me. And then, then it be after that came the interview. And I'll tell you what though, she's like one of my biggest cheerleaders, one of our biggest cheerleaders. Now she has, she sent me care packages throughout the entire writing process uh, a little gift when I finished, uh, she sent Brittany something as well. Um, just very, we just became so open and shared so much information w- without which some of this book would have been incomplete as far as the LA Dandelions are concerned and also the actual starting of the NWFL. So, I mean, she was crucial and um, I just, I have a lot of, of love for her and and just appreciation that she you know, trusted us and, um, was happy, is happy with the result. I have a favorite interview as well. I've, I have like several people who are my favorite characters. I'll, I'll use characters in quotes, you know, in the book, but, sure. um, my favorite interview was, 
I did a three-way phone call with two players on the Oklahoma City Dolls. And if you heard me mention the Toledo Troopers losing their very first game, they were beaten by the Oklahoma City Dolls. And they it was an overtime win, and they won with two trick plays, um, a, hook and, a hook and ladder, and then a flea flicker. And so I was on a call with uh, Charlotte Gordon and Doris Stokes, who executed the hook and ladder together. And they sat there and, like, recalled how it went and how it had never happened in practice. They'd never gotten it right and why and how it worked during the game like it was yesterday. Um, And they also currently play in a seniors basketball league together. So they've been friends for, like, 50 years And that was a really fun interview because they got excited all over again. And they were like, we shut Linda Jefferson down. Linda Jefferson, you know, is the best player in the league. And they're still so proud of themselves. Um, But that was a really cool experience to actually be on the phone with the two of them as they kind of rebuilt that memory together. So what sort of phenomenon were we talking about here? Um, what's the height of this league? And to put it in perspective that, you know, any every, anybody can understand, like what might attendance have been at the very, very height of the league? Probably 4,000-ish fans to a game. Um, I think three to 4,000 seems to be the numbers that popped up over and over again when they were getting the most people. I think um, what's really interesting about this league um, too, and we think about, okay, like the Dallas Blue Bonnets played in Texas Stadium, which is where the Dallas Cowboys played. And you're like 4,000 people at a, you know, some of the teams played at high school stadium. So 4,000 people in a high school stadium looks a lot different than 4,000 people in Texas Stadium, which is like not even 1% of the seats, you know, like, like this is a very different, um, (laughs) but you can think about it in terms of, I think we think about the numbers that an NFL game draws, but you have to go back to understand like what it actually means to look at like the first few years of the NFL and say, what were those games drawing? And it's comparable, honestly, um, it's comparable. And the, the difference here was that a lot of the men who owned these teams figured they would see a return on their investment in a few, in a few short years. And that's just like, not what happened. Even a few short months. Yeah. So, you know, that's just not what happens. Most leagues take at least a decade to be profitable. And when it's men who are playing, people will, will complete, will continue to funnel money into those leagues, even if no one's showing up, even if they're losing a lot of money. Um, And so I think it's really sad to think about what this league could have been if it had been had the same investment. It's like 90 percent of, you know, the NFL teams that existed in the first decade failed. Right. So we can we can look to a comparable league and see that actually the NWFL was primed to maybe have the same kind of success if it had had the same kind of investment. But it was just never given that chance. And I think the owners, when they got together to form the league, didn't really think long-term and they were focused on kind of short-term growth and expecting to function like the end of the NFL when that was just impossible. You know, if they had started small, if they had taken travel into account those expenses and, and maybe rearrange um, the league a certain way if or, they had, or, or insurance th- or, or insurance, <laughs> or if they had gotten sponsors from the start gathered sponsors and investors from the start. Um, Just a lot of different things they could have done differently. And yet, I was surprised to learn, because I'm 
learning about the existence of this league at all through this book, like most people will be, I was surprised doubly to learn that the league did exist in some form into, I mean, well into my lifetime, into the, the late 80s, right? What what did the, you know, we've talked a bit about the rise. What did the, the fall, the decline of this league look like? I think we we kind of put the, the heyday of this league from its formation in, in 74 um, to the 1979 season, um, which is when the best teams existed. I think at its height, there were 14 teams in three divisions um, at the height of, of the league. Um, the 80s were really, really hard to track because there was a lot of media interest at the beginning because this it seemed like a gimmick. It was a curiosity. People wanted to know what this was about. And then after a year or two, um, you know, the media seemed to lose interest. And by the eighties, there's very little coverage. There's not even box scores um, for the games. And so that was the hardest part actually was to track the decline of the league and to really get a sense for what the eighties looked like. Um, from what we can gather, <laughs> there was usually not more than three, maybe four teams playing in each of the seasons in the eighties. And they were like the same people who kept folding teams and then popping up again in a like neighboring city, um, in Michigan, <laughs> the, the, um, Detroit demons who were one of the original teams in 1974 were hand-me-down Detroit lions uniforms and those uniforms continued for a decade to be worn by like three or four different Michigan and WFL teams that just sort of kept passing them on. And eventually um, they just didn't have enough people to continue fielding teams. Right. It sounds like a, a punk rock bands with a PA just getting handed down through <laughs> yeah. a couple iterations. So what does this story mean today you know i mean it's just interesting on its on its merits but what what reflections of this story do you see in in the world i mean what is the state of there is organized women's football happening in the world today right yeah there's a there's about four or five um semi-pro leagues in the u.s that are functioning right now um still struggling for attendance still struggling for investors and and still struggling for for media coverage Kind of, it's a. They kind of have the same um, issues and hurdles to overcome as the NWFL, and you would think after all this time that there would have been more progress in that regard. Um, part of it, um, after talking to a couple different people who are in two different leagues, um, part of it is not having one centralized league and pooling all of your resources together, and therefore you're not trying to split split the the attendance or the fans or the marketing and the money or the, um, you know, investors, you can all grab one league you can get from the same pool. Um, so that's part of the problem. Uh, and I, I know they're, they're trying to figure that out. Um, the other aspect, which Brittany and I have talked about before is the fact that, you know, we, we started from the jump talking about how football is a very masculine um, coded sport, you know, and I think as a society, people still have a hard time wrapping their minds around the fact that women can play such a violent sport. Um, and even from an intellectual standpoint, understand the strategies involved in all of that. Um, you still see women who are analysts today getting questioned for their football acumen. Um 
most recently Mina Kimes that happened this week, actually with Jeff Garcia, you know, questioning how she can be judge quarterbacks or, or know what quarterbacks, um, you know, can do in that on the field when she's never thrown a touchdown pass, you know, so uh, we're still dealing with that. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of hurdles in that regard. I think the NWFL itself as a league sort of paved the way for what we, for the women's leagues that we see happening today. I mean, you could, you could see threads from the WNBA to this league, uh, the National Women's Soccer League, all the, all the women's leagues that are coming out today. And I also lastly think that, you know, there's lessons to be learned from what the owners and the, and the, and the, and the people who are running the NWFL didn't do that people today can do differently. Uh, Athletes Unlimited is, an, is a new innovative sports league that has found success with softball and um, volleyball and lacrosse. They just launched the basketball uh, season this week. They're starting small and they're, they're, they're playing in one location. Like they, they're doing these things that are, they're trying to um, serve as a good foundation to build on you know, instead of just trying to grab everything all at once. So, um, yeah, that was a, a long answer to your question. <laughs> I mean, the world seems, I mean, a little bit more prime for this than it would have been. Then you look at, uh, I mean, we've all seen in real time the evolution in the UFC from a woman will never fight in the UFC to whoops, our most marketable athlete is, is a woman. So I guess that all has to change. And I don't That's see. A, yeah, I don't a great see, point. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know what it is about football. I think it's yeah. more than just the masculine aspect. I do think like, like I said, the intelligence that, you know, men are able to have as coaches, you know, gosh, a woman could never understand schemes. And, you know, it's just, I think, I think there's that and, you know, typical stereotypes that go into it. Um, and then just that women's football just hasn't gained that foothold um, and that following that it needs to in order to grow. There's um, a terrific quote in your uh, book, and I can only imagine how excited you were, you two were, when you came across it, this uh, coach, Norm Richardson, giving a pep talk before a game, telling uh, his players, your name will not go down in history. The papers will not relive this night 50 years from now. No, <laughs> he even went here. No, there will be no book or movie about tonight. And yet, indeed, there is. And you wrote it. And um, and congratulations to you two for having done that. But I, 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 you mentioned the one player who expressed her gratitude. I can only imagine there must be any number of players who are happy that the subject is coming to light and receiving the thorough and respectful treatment that it that it deserves. I mean, you, I'm assuming you've gotten some positive feedback from former players in the league. We have, and we've met more, which mm-hmm. we knew would happen. Um, and that's been, that's been really cool too. Um, and I know um, I've been trying to make time to connect with anyone who, who reaches out even, even just a little bit to hear their stories um, because I think it's so important. And I want them to know that like their story is just as valid and deserves to, you know, to be told to alongside all of the ones that are in the book. There's so much more there. Well, it's a great subject and it's a a really engaging read and I encourage everybody to check it out. It's called Hail Mary, the Rise and Fall of the National Women's Football League. Brittany, Lindsay, thank you so much for this book and thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. It was a great conversation. 